Well, especially welcome to those who may be watching online. Our speaker this morning is our pastor in training, Mark Brown, and Mark will be preaching later on Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 23, where we read of Paul's arrival in Corinth. And again, we see him reasoning with Jews and Gentiles, trying to persuade them of the truth of the gospel message, the good news of salvation in Christ. The reading is taken from the book of Acts, um, chapter 18, verses 1 to 23, and I'm reading from the ESV translation. And uh, if you don't have your Bible, then you'll find it printed on the inside of today's diary. Paul in Corinth, Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Paul returns to Antioch. After this, Paul stayed many days longer 
and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencrii he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Good morning. Uh, good morning. And let me add my welcome to, to you, uh, to Jonathan's welcome earlier. It's great to, to be able to come together this morning and to, to be able to come to God's Word um, and to have Him speak to us. Um, so let me just pray before I, I open the passage that Janet so um, beautifully read for us earlier. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we can gather in this place, and we thank you that as we do and as we open your word together, it's your voice that we want to hear. And Lord, we have confidence that you do speak to us. So would you give us ears this morning to, to hear you, and would you be at work changing our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I wonder how many of you, if you were to, to just stop and take stock of your life, of where you are this morning, how many of you would say, I have absolutely no idea how I got here? Like, I think it's almost universally true that when we look at who we are, uh, the person that we become, the place that we live in, the family that we have or don't have, the jobs that we have or don't have, all of the details of our life, whether good or bad, when we consider just how we got here, we have to recognize that very little, if any of it, is the result of our own meticulous planning. Like when I consider my own life and consider the fact that I am a full adult with adult responsibilities, that I have a wife and two kids, and that I live in beautiful Bankery and have the immense privilege of being a pastor in training here, I kind of think, how did I get here? And it wasn't by my own design. And if you were to tell um, me when I was 20-something that I would be standing here this morning doing this, I would have said that is incredibly unlikely. I probably would have worded it slightly differently. In fact. Um, <laughs> But, but God moves in ways that we cannot understand sometimes. You know, where we are, where you are, is not so much the result of your own meticulous planning, but the fact that, that God is in control of all of the events, big and small. God has been in the big and the small things that have brought me here today. And whether you recognize it or not, it's the same for you. And in Acts 18, we see this morning that the same is true for Paul and his work in the triumphant mission of God. And now we've just sung about this great truth that, that Jonathan taught us about in William Cooper's hymn, when he says that God 
moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And this is the the theme and the title of our message this morning, that God moves in mysterious ways. Last week, we saw how God moved Paul to Athens so that he could share the gospel there. And it it wasn't a planned stopping off point for Paul's journey. He hastily fled there to escape persecution. Athens wasn't on his plans, but Paul knew that God put specific people in specific places at specific times for his good purposes. It might not have been Paul's plan, but it was God's. And we see time and time again through Acts how God orchestrates the movement of his triumphant mission. At Pentecost, God gave his people the gift of the Holy Spirit to enable them to preach boldly the message of of, of Jesus to people from all over the place in their own native language. And, And many people heard this message, took it back home, and took it with them to their own people. Now, only God could do this. And as we see after the stoning of Stephen in Acts 8, there's a great persecution that causes the church to scatter. And with it, the message of the gospel is scattered far and wide. No human would plan such a mission strategy. God's plans often confounded Paul's own plans. We saw back in Acts 16 how Paul and co, they wanted to go into the Roman province of Asia, but the Holy Spirit stopped them. And later, Paul attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus again stopped them. We don't know why, but we see in these episodes very clearly who is in charge of the mission. God. God is in control, and he often uses people and events that would seem utterly unlikely to work. And he blocks things that we might naturally expect to be sensible strategies. We see God is in control of his mission, and he moves in mysterious ways. And we see this theme emerge from our passage this morning in four distinct events. Firstly, we see an unlikely meeting in verses 1 to 3. And then we see an unlikely salvation in verses 4 to 8, an unlikely rescue in verse 9 to 17, and an unlikely return in verses 18 to 23. An unlikely meeting, an unlikely salvation, an unlikely rescue, and an unlikely return. So verses 1 to 3, at the start of Acts 18, we are introduced to this husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla. And they are exiles. They've been evicted from Rome by the Emperor Claudius, probably somewhere around AD 49. Uh, The historian Suetonius tells us that Claudius evicted people at this time since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, referring to Jews who had become followers of Jesus Christ. Aquila, we're told, is from a place called Pontus, which is a northern part of of, um, modern-day Turkey. And it's possible that after being kicked out of Rome and perhaps being made homeless, they were on their way back to Pontus, but they stopped and settled at Corinth, which is roughly halfway between Rome and Pontus. Um, Perhaps they stopped at Corinth because it was a bustling trade city in which they could make a good living. Whatever their plan was, we know one thing for sure. It was not their plan to get evicted from Rome. 
And from their perspective, things had gone wrong. Plans were unraveling. But as we see, God is in control and he is moving in mysterious ways to arrange a meeting between Paul and this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. So Paul, on his arrival to Corinth, had somehow heard of them and he sought them out. And we know that Paul was actually a people person. He never wanted to do ministry alone. We always see him partnering with people, with brothers and sisters in the mission. And, and it just so happened that Paul had a lot in common with Aquila and Priscilla. They were both Jews, both believers in Christ, both tent makers. They had the same trade. We see in, in 1 Corinthians, as a bit of background, that Paul, he was determined while in Corinth not to take a salary for his work as a minister of the Word of God. Um, although he was well within his rights to do so, he wanted to, dis to distinguish himself from the, the itinerant speech makers and orators who were all over Corinth. They would come there to draw a great crowd and earn money based on the eloquence of their speeches. Paul wanted nothing to do with getting paid to preach what people wanted to hear. So he worked hard as a tent maker for a living. It was his trade and it enabled him to do what was most important to him, which was preaching the word. Tent making was his trade, but as we see, preaching was his primary occupation. And so in, in these opening verses, we see Paul, Aquila and Priscilla having this most unlikely of meetings but it was designed in God's providence for their mutual benefit. They were able to encourage one another, build one another up, and equip each other for God's triumphant mission. And later, Paul would even come to call Aquila and Priscilla his co-workers in Christ. In Romans 16, we see that. God brought them together for their mutual benefit in a way that they could never have designed themselves. We can, we can draw some comforts from this episode of Aquila and Priscilla, when life doesn't go according to plan, when terrible things happen even. We don't need to think that God has abandoned us. He may in fact be using us to be an encouragement to someone who needs encouraged. He might be disrupting our plans to fulfill his plan, a plan for the furtherance of the mission, his mission, for his glory and for our ultimate good. You know, even in our church this morning, I can think of more than one person, and I'm sure you can too, who has undergone distressing and painful situations, situations they would never have chosen for themselves. But this suffering has been a means of meeting and comforting other people going through the same type of suffering, opening a door to bring the hope of Christ to someone who may otherwise never have heard this comfort. And who knows what the eternal consequences of this might be. You know, the unlikely meetings that God organizes through circumstances we would never choose for ourselves is one way in this passage that we see God moving in a mysterious way. And this gives great significance to the people God has placed in your life today. And it gives great significance to the events of our life that often feel confusing and maybe even sometimes pointless. God is in control and he moves in mysterious ways. Next we see this unlikely salvation in verse 4 to 8. 
Here we see Paul making a strategic move in the mission that that brings about this unlikely outcome, an unlikely salvation of an unlikely person. When Timothy and Silas arrive back from Macedonia in verse 4, they find Paul hard at work. He is occupied with preaching the word and testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He was occupied telling the Jews that Jesus is the rescuer that they need, the one who died and who rose again for their salvation. He wanted them to know that Jesus was the one in whom they must believe to truly know God, to be right with God, and to live in peace with him forever. Now, we know that Paul loved the Jews. They were his own people, and he wanted nothing more than to see them saved. He was prepared to suffer and even die to make it happen if he could. In Romans 9, Paul was so fervently desiring that his fellow Jews would turn to Jesus and be saved, he states that he would be prepared to trade his own salvation for theirs if such a thing were possible. So for Paul, sharing the life-saving message of Jesus with the Jews was no mere discharge of duty. His heart broke for his fellow Jews. So when we see him preaching to them only to be opposed and reviled, we can imagine just how much that would have hurt. This makes the statement that he gives in verse 6 all the more hard-hitting. You see, he, he shakes off his clothes in a, in a sign that the Jews had rejected him and the gospel, and he was going to part ways with them. And then he says to these Jews, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. It's heartbreaking for Paul but he knows that he has done all that he can to save them. He has preached the gospel and they have rejected it. Now, they themselves must bear the responsibility for their response to God's offer of salvation in Jesus. And it's sobering to know that the same is true today for anyone who hears the gospel. Each one of us are responsible for how we respond, and our response has consequences. Perhaps you you feel that you are neutral to the message of the gospel. You haven't made up your mind yet, and and it's good to be open-minded, and it's good to ask questions, and if that's you, I'm delighted that you are here. But let me gently warn you, there's actually no such thing as no decision If you are on a a ship that is sinking and a lifeboat is offered, there is no neutral ground. You're either on the the sinking ship or you're on the lifeboat. There's no such thing as no decision. And where you stand has consequences. Where you stand with regard to Christ has consequences. Paul knew this. And out of his deep love for the Jews, he warned them of their peril in the strongest way he knew how. And having warned them, we see that Paul moves from preaching to the Jews in the synagogue and goes instead to the Gentiles. He moves his preaching base from the Jewish synagogue to the home of Titius Justus. The door of the synagogue closed to Paul and the door of Titius, who lived just next door, opened And then we see this most unlikely salvation happens. We don't read of Titius being converted, but instead Crispus, the synagogue leader, 
What an unlikely salvation. I think Paul would probably have given up hope for the Jews of this synagogue. But then his expectations are confounded as God moves in mysterious ways, bringing about this most unlikely of salvations. Many of us as Christians have loved ones that we have for years tried to convince of the truth of Jesus and the salvation that he offers. And it can sometimes feel like a fruitless exercise, especially when we face opposition and maybe even hatred. Perhaps you have given up hope and gone elsewhere. Well, be encouraged. Even when Paul had given up hope that he could reach the Jews and move to more promising soil here, God was still at work in the heart of the synagogue. God saved the most unlikely person in the most unlikely way, and he still does this today. You know, we know, those of us who are Christians, that God saves unlikely people because he has saved us. And when we look at the likelihood of us being saved, we would have to say that humanly speaking, it is utterly unlikely. And in fact, every salvation is impossible, humanly speaking. Impossible, but not impossible to God. There is no salvation that is too unlikely. So take heart and dare to hope and pray that God would save the person in your life that you think is utterly unlikely to come to salvation. Here we see God moving in a mysterious way to bring about this unlikely salvation of Crispus. And not only Crispus, but his whole household and many of those in Corinth, they all believed and were baptized. God works and moves in mysterious ways that confound our expectations. And as a, as a small example of how God confounds our expectations, um, those of us who are involved in the, the Scripture Union Group in Bankery Primary School will will attest to this. After COVID, we were forced into a move that we didn't want. Previous to COVID, the Scripture Union was indoors, in the warmth, out of the rain, and we could control things, or so we thought. With COVID, restrictions meant we were, we were forced outside into the playground, and none of us really wanted to be there. But in God's providence, it's been the best move for that ministry. We have had fruit that we would never have had we have children gathering around us that are just kind of earwigging in on what's being said. We wouldn't have had this opportunity if we had had our way, but God's way is often so much better than ours, isn't it? Let's move on to our third unlikely scenario, where we have this unlikely rescue in verse 9 to 17. See, the unlikely salvation of the ruler of the synagogue would be sure to delight Paul, but it was also very likely to bring more opposition and hatred from the Jews. The pattern of Paul's ministry to date had been preach, suffer, repeat. Preaching was often accompanied with belief and then violent opposition, and often it meant fleeing that place in a hurry. However, this isn't what happens in Corinth. In verse 10, the Lord himself speaks to Paul one night in a vision. Paul was afraid of what the result of Crispus's salvation might be. He knew what it was like to be persecuted and beaten and imprisoned and almost killed because of this message. And he was afraid it might happen again. But God, he graciously comes to him and says, don't be afraid. 
It's encouraging, isn't it, that even Paul was afraid? God went to Paul in his fear, and he promised to keep him safe from harm. God tells Paul to keep on speaking and not to be silent. And the reason is that he still has many people in this city of Corinth, people that will be his people. Paul is is no doubt surprised, but he trusts God and obeys him. And Paul stays in Corinth, we see, for a further 18 months teaching the Word of God. This episode, it gives us uh, a great insight into the mysterious moving of God in the act of salvation. God knows that there's people in Corinth that will be his people. And God is sovereign to save them. Yet, we see that God does not do this work alone through supernatural means. He intends to use very ordinary means. He intends to use Paul and the preaching of his word. And so he tells Paul that he and his preaching is necessary for this mission. He tells him to stay and to speak. This is no less true for us today. God is still a God who saves He is sovereign in the work of salvation. He's in control. And he's also sovereign in the means that he chooses to use to bring about that salvation. He uses ordinary means of his people bringing his word to his world. And the knowledge that God is sovereign to save and that he will save, it it shouldn't cause us to to sit on our hands and say, "Well, well, God will save people regardless of what I do. It should, in fact, encourage us to get off of our seats and to speak the Word of God because, believe it or not, you are the unlikely means that God uses to bring His saving message to the world. We, as Christians, are the unlikely means that God uses to rescue His people. Paul knows this, and he responds by speaking and teaching the Word of God in Corinth, and he enjoys the protection that God had promised in verse 12, however, it looks, it looks likely that this protection of Paul is about to come to an abrupt end. The Jews have brought a united attack against Paul, and they bring him in front of Gallio, the Roman official that would have been responsible for maintaining order. It seems very likely that Paul will be chased out of town. The Jews hated him, And Rome was no friend of Christians either. Remember, Aquila and Priscilla had been forced out of Rome because they were Christians. But Paul is not evicted from Corinth. Instead, in the most unlikely way, by the most unlikely person, Paul receives God's protection and rescue. Gallio becomes Paul's unlikely rescuer. And it's not because of any great love he has for Paul or for Christians. It seems he just wanted a quiet life and couldn't be bothered officiating what he saw as an in-house squabble between Jews of different theological persuasions. Gallio, even in his indifference to Paul, becomes his unlikely rescuer. And we see he wasn't really interested in protecting Christians from the Jews because he isn't in the least bit bothered when they take Sosthenes and beat him up. Uh, Sosthenes, we are told, is the ruler of the synagogue, another ruler of the synagogue, And we read a little bit more about him in 1 Corinthians 1. The introduction to that letter lists him as a co-author with Paul to this letter of the church in Corinth. 
So Gallio, the Roman official, he's not interested in protecting Paul. He's not interested in protecting Christianity. He's interested in a quiet life, and he becomes an unlikely rescuer. Again, God moves in this mysterious way to ensure his promises are kept to Paul. And now, finally, we move to this this last unlikely event, this unlikely return in verses 18 to 23. Here we see Paul's clear knowledge that God is in control of his triumphant mission. And he expresses this clearly both in his actions and particularly in his words about an unlikely return to Ephesus. So first we see this this curious detail of Paul's haircut. And the occasion for this haircut was the end of his time in Corinth, but the purpose is not because he needed to go home looking more respectable for his mother. Um, The haircut marks the end of a journey and the end of a vow. The exact details of this vow are not given, uh, but in Numbers 6, we read of something called a Nazarite vow. And it's possible that Paul's vow was similar to this. Certainly, the, the haircut at the end of the vow fits. The Nazarite vow was a, a voluntary thing. It was taken for a defined period of time where a person would choose to separate himself to the Lord. And, and this invisible vow between the person and God was made visible by a number of things. First, the person would refrain from, from drinking wine or eating any grape products. And they would also refrain from having their hair cut and among other things. At the end of the vow period, the person would cut their hair and bring it along with other offerings to God in the temple. So the haircut here marked the end of the period of this vow and the end of a defined period of separation to the Lord for some task or service. So we might not know exactly the details of Paul's vow here, but it it seems likely that the cutting of his hair in verse 18 marks the end of this vow period, and and it comes at the end of his time in Corinth. And we could speculate that Paul had taken a vow to separate himself to the Lord during this period of mission in Corinth. And in making this vow, Paul was acknowledging his utter dependence and devotion to God, dependence on and devotion to God. Paul recognized that the mission he was on was not his, but God's triumphant mission. And he wasn't in control. God was. What this vow and haircut signify is that Paul understood that God was sovereign in his mission. And then we see him express this very thing when he speaks to the Ephesians. In verses 18 to 21, Paul has almost completed his second missionary journey. He leaves Corinth and he sets sail towards his sending church way back in Antioch. And he goes via Ephesus and Caesarea, taking with him his now co-workers, Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul lands in Ephesus first for a quick stopover, perhaps to, to stock up on supplies for the remainder of the journey. And he is again found preaching because this was his constant occupation. And he tries again to reason with the Jews in the synagogue. And we see them tried to persuade him to stay longer. They were desperate to hear more. But Paul, he declines. He determines to make his way back to Antioch. Now, it's, it's important for us to remember 
what the, the travel would have been like in those days. The, the journeys that Paul took were, were no light and easy undertaking. Travel over such great distances was dangerous and expensive, and there was no guarantee that he would make it home safely, let alone come back to Ephesus. So when Paul left Ephesus, it was more likely than not that they would never see each other again. However, Paul, knowing that God is in control and knowing that God has done things that have surprised him in the past and will likely surprise him again, he says, I will return if God wills. He's saying it's his desire to return. It might be unlikely, but if it's God's will, it will happen. It's certain, no matter how unlikely it might be. And as we see in the final verses of this passage and into the next section of Acts, this unlikely return does indeed happen. Verse 22 and 23 tells us that Paul sailed to Caesarea and on his way on to Antioch. He probably stops in to say hello to the church at Jerusalem. And at Antioch, he would report all about the missionary journey and how God has moved in many mysterious ways to accomplish the mission. And then Luke barely draws a breath before telling us that Paul sets sail again. He heads out again. Um, on foot this time rather than on sailing. Uh, and this marks the start of his third and final missionary journey. And he would make this unlikely return. Um, by God's will, Paul went to Galatia and Phrygia and would spend about three years in Ephesus. It's longer than he spent anywhere else in his missionary journey. Um, and he spent his time there strengthening all of the disciples. The closing words of, of this passage, Paul strengthened the disciples. And I've no doubt that much of the way that Paul strengthened the disciples was to say that I am on God's mission, and so are you. It's God's triumphant mission. He is in control, and, and he moves in mysterious ways. So trust him. And this is a great encouragement for us today. And it is a challenge for us. We who are Christians today are on the very same mission that Paul was on. It is God's triumphant mission. He is in control, and he still moves in mysterious ways. And it is for us today to trust in the mysterious moving of God through us and in us as he brings to fulfillment his triumphant mission of salvation, as we are his ordinary means to bring his word to his world. Let's stand and say the words of the grace to one another. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.